Welcome to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. I'm Isabel, your host and founder and firebrand of The Uprising Spark, a digital platform that offers life coaching products and services for modern, independent, child-free women. Our aim is to build a strong female community and to connect empowered women around the globe. Hello, Firecrackers. Welcome to a new episode of The Honest Uproar. My guest today is Kristen Tetsi. She's an author. She is the author of The Age of the, Ch- of the Child. Most recently, she has written other books. She is also one of the three founding non-mothers of Child-Free Girls. I get to talk to her every single day. And I invited her over because I wanted you guys to meet her. So hi, Kristen. Hello. What's up? <laughs> it's like I haven't seen you in ages. <laughs> <laughs> it's been minutes at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I briefly introduced you, but I want you to tell my audience more about you. Whatever you want to share, just put it out there. Okay. You know, this is a tough question. I was actually just talking to my husband and saying, I know because I've listened to a lot of her podcasts. She's going to say, tell me about yourself. And I told him, I have no idea what that even means. So (laughs) I will probably just say that first and foremost, I'm a writer. And I say that not in a, I'm a writer kind of way, but um, that's always been my, I've just always been into it. Uh, When I was in middle school, I used to write really bad poetry. And I think that's where it started. And I don't know why. I just really got into it. Not bad poetry, but writing in general. And because I know that this has something to do with child-free in general, one of the things about the bad poetry I wrote was that it was very focused on love. I I had this feeling, this desire, this need in the future for one of those relationships like you read about in romance novels but better because there's a real good friendship there. It's not just like, I used to hate him and then I loved him and we had great sex. It was, you know, I envisioned this great, wonderful, not perfect relationship because there's no such thing, but you know, the right one. And I always saw this guy who would be sitting on a couch with me and wearing a big cable knit sweater. I don't know why, but he had dark hair. <laughs> you know, it's, I love that. Winter is really romantic to me. I love winter and fall and cold weather because there's scarves and sweaters and cozy but I was really into that, but nothing I ever did uh, or wrote or anything ever had to do with children or, or weddings for that matter. Like I wasn't one of those kids who envisioned a wedding and a white dress and people watching me. So yeah, I think if I were to tell you about myself in a way that meant anything, it would be, I've always really been into writing and love. <laughs> but not because the first thing you said, like, you know, those books I write about love. And the first thing I said, oh, I thought, sorry, was, oh, please let her not say Daniel Seals books, because those are, <laughs> you know, like, were you talking about that kind of love? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, I had a phase. I started out obsessed with Archie and Jughead comic books. You know, the whole town of Riverdale I was really into that. And I had older stepsisters who did read Harlequin romances. So I read and dog-eared the pages of those because whatever. And then I got into, I did read Danielle Steele. Like I stayed up all night one night reading one Danielle Steele book where the family was in Russia and they were czars and czarinas and a Fabergé egg. So there was a phase, but no, the, the love I imagined was not Danielle Steele because her Families almost always involved a blended family. There were almost always 
stepkids coming into the picture and problems with teenagers and, and all that stuff. And I don't think that interested me as much as being in Russia or hearing about a Fabergé egg or the love relationship between the, the adults. I didn't care about the kids. Um, after that, it was like Dean Koons and Stephen King. And I had a big, you know, mystery, murder, gross, morbid phase. I also love Stephen King. He happens to be one of my favorite writers. And I, I stumbled upon him after reading Agatha Christie. So I know exactly what you mean in terms of, you know, that kind of novel. I love it. I love it. But Daniel Steele, no, I'm going to be honest. I have read Daniel Steele's books. <laughs> well, you <laughs> better if you didn't talk shit about her. And <laughs> I, I was younger, um, I did. And, oh, my God. Let's just say that that is the kind of love that only exists in her books, basically. You know, just being realistic. Um, I remember one ex- one book that I read, and there's this one of the scenes that she's describing is a guy riding a horse, and his hair is flowing in the wind, and it's <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. It's just weird. <laughs> That's funny. I don't remember that at all. It's funny that you remember it like that was the thing that bothered you when I was when I was reading her. I think I was in high school, and so I was fine with the stories. When I think back on it now, I don't think about anything having to do with anything but, yeah, I didn't really, you know, like my memory goes to step families, children, teenagers. That's what I remember now. You know, being a writer, I understand it's not easy because there's a lot of writers out there. There's a lot of competition. Like, it's not easy in the sense that, I mean, writing is not easy per se. There's a lot of people who can't even spell. So that's one thing. But on the other hand, like trying to make a career out of writing is also hard. Because you have to basically get into the whole, other than marketing and selling your books, sometimes I've heard, I'm not, this is a question, because this is something I've heard, I'm not sure. Some writers would have to be untrue to, their, to themselves and be untrue to their style in order to sell more books. Is that a thing? I think it depends on what it is you want to sell. Um, I think if your interest happens to align with a particular genre, and that's the way you want to write, and that's the way you write, then you can probably have an easier time of being true to yourself. I think if you're more interested in literary fiction or something that doesn't really fit neatly into a genre, then it's harder. Um, With my first novel, I sent it around to a ton of agents, and I got positive feedback from a few that I thought were impressive. But they did tell me that because it was literary... And because I was unknown, they would have a really hard time selling it because publishers wouldn't know how to market it. So it didn't matter how much they liked it or, you know, nothing, none of that mattered. They couldn't sell it as it was because of those reasons. And um, when I finally did find an agent, she read that book and she signed me based on that book, not necessarily to try to sell it, but because she liked it enough that she thought I could sell my next one. Because that one had, by that point, I think, already been self-published. So a lot of times when you do that, that book's pretty much dead to publishers. So I wrote another one. And she was disappointed because she thought it would be more commercial. She wanted it to follow a certain sort of trajectory or, you know, graph and chart of highs and lows and character. I don't know. But I did feel like... She had certain expectations and it had to be written a certain way in order for it to be marketable. And so following that experience, I stopped writing. I was just, I had no idea who I was or what I wanted to do for like four years. I just, the thought of writing depressed the crap out of me because I thought, 
because when I started writing, it was utterly, absolutely for the love. I didn't have any, I've never been a dreamer necessarily, unless it comes to romance and love, but I didn't, you know, I didn't think I want to be a writer and be a bestseller, or I want to be a writer and this or and that. All it was, was I love writing. I love the challenge of it. I love the creation of it. I love playing with words. It's like a big, huge puzzle of text. It's just so much fun. Um, but after that experience, it became about how do you write the thing that will appeal to an agent or a publisher or an editor? And it's like you're trying to fit all of your love for creativity into this horrible, awful little slot that someone else has decided is what you're supposed to put in there. And it just is disgusting. It's like against everything. And it, it still kind of affects me now um, when I write stuff. When I wrote The Age of the Child, I was, I've never been anxious about writing anything I've always just gone into it for fun and because I love it and that was my third novel and before I started I remember sitting on the couch in my computer my laptop was over on the table somewhere and I was looking at it and I just felt this weird like (gasps) you know just this horrible feeling of okay okay just just go do it just go write it because it wasn't because it was almost like I had to overcome this battle of don't write it. Do not go into it thinking you have to make it what people want to sell using traditional marketing or publishing um, bullet points or whatever the hell they use, you know, for their business model. I had to force myself to remember to go into it to tell a good story, to be true to my characters, to enjoy the sentence play and the relationship tension that I so love to create. I mean, God, I love relationship tension. I love writing it. I love writing the conversations these people have and the things they say that communicate everything while saying, I don't know. It's just, I just had to remember that it had to be enjoyable and it had to say what I wanted it to say, but in a way that would be fun and gripping for readers. You know, they always say, um, write the book you want to read. And I totally believe that. I if if I don't want to read it, I don't want to write it. So it has to be, at least in my opinion, good. And that has to be the focus, not what sells, because we've seen some of the shit that sells. We have seen a lot of the shit that sells. Before I get into <laughs> because I have an example of something, but I want to get into the age of the child. I want you to tell me and the audience what this book is about and why is it something that you wanted to write. It was I think it was a culmination of a lot of, um, for a lot of years, I had been writing as Sylvia D. Lucas, and I was writing a bunch of uh, just child-free related material. And in doing that, you know, if you're writing enough about a certain amount of thing, you're, you're reading a lot of stuff about that, that thing also, and you're seeing a lot of different perspectives, and you're seeing things that bother you about it. And at some point, I decided I was really bothered by the direction of the child-free conversation because there was too much focus on... Um, on women not having children and women being called selfish or narcissistic or, you know, all these, and that's certainly troubling. But then I started thinking about how cruel it is to any potential children to say to a person who doesn't want them, you should have them and to pressure women into having them and to, and to just so, so thoughtlessly and carelessly invite brand new impressionable, moldable 
destroyable life into any inhospitable situation just because you think people should have kids. I just think that's so cruel and so hypocritical um, because that usually tends to come from the group that claims it's pro-children, pro-life, and, you know, think of the children. What about the children? The children are our future. I did, it just really bothered me. Um, so it was the hypocrisy of that combined with um, the ease with which people would take, uh, would give no consideration to the, the life goals, desires, or just deep, deep feelings of what they want of people who don't want children. There are books and books and movies and all kinds of things about women who can't get pregnant because we know it's some great tragedy if you want to have a child and you can't. I mean, there really are movies about infertility. There are so many, there's so much literature about that um, and about people having hard times adopting and, oh, this desire to have a child is so powerful and tragic if you can't do it. But if you don't want a kid, no one thinks it's tragic at all if you find yourself pregnant. It's like, oh, well, you know, okay, well, I guess that happened. Big, sorry, you know, you're going to enjoy it. You're going to love it. It's just, it's assumed that that's not a big deal. They don't, there's no understanding of how great a tragedy it is to have your whole entire life go in a direction that you don't want it to go. Uh, so with the age of the child, I, oh, and also just stereotypes of child-free women and, and, and this whole idea that you will eventually want your child or a child even if you never wanted one, that you'll come around and just really embrace it if you happen to accidentally get pregnant and there's no option to terminate or or something. So all of these things kind of came together. And in the age of the child, I wasn't at all, believe it or not, interested in Roe v. Wade or, I mean, I had no idea that all of this would be happening now. I started this when Trump was just kind of an idea of a potential <coughs> um, whatever the hell he was. <laughs> It was really just to make those points, to point out to, and also, of course, I mean, those were the foundation of it. Everything else is just um, what happens. So in this story, we have a child-free character, never wanted children, um, but she's existing in a time when pro-life measures have taken over. One thing I must make clear is that the government in in this book is not bad. They don't have any kind of control issues like in 1984 or any other dystopian novel. They don't want to control people. They don't want to, you know, nothing is based on economics or anything like that. They truly believe that they are doing their best to protect children. And it begins with them protecting the potential children. They believe that all potential life has the equal right to exist. So they outlaw birth control. You can abstain if you want to. You can use the rhythm method, but you can't use artificial means to prevent pregnancy. Uh, You can't get an abortion. That's a life sentence. Uh, So in this situation, we have Catherine, who's child-free, and she's practiced the rhythm method, but her husband is very good looking. And things got a little, you know, it just wasn't well-timed. So she ended up pregnant. And as much as she tries, and we, we, we go with her as she tries to, to not be pregnant, um, that doesn't necessarily work. So we see her as a child-free person in this situation of being pregnant. Um, we see her husband, who was on board with her with not having children, um, experience changes in his uh, perspective. And eventually, as this um, anti-birth control measure has affected the country over years and years, let's say about a little over a decade. 
we see the effects of that. And of course, if everybody's having children, there are a lot more children, whether you can afford them or not. Uh, you have a lot more kids in schools. You have a lot. You have a lot of bad stuff going on. So what the government decides is that maybe we should try to protect the quality of life of these these poor children that we're seeing awful things happen to. So they enact parent licensing. This again is purely in the interest of protecting children. They don't want to control people. They don't want to, um, they seriously have no ill will. It's just bad things are happening to kids. Let's make sure the kids are only being born into environments where we're pretty certain they're going to be well cared for. And in this situation, we have Millie, who is in desperate need of respect and admiration and love. And so she at one point decides that she must impregnate because if you're a carrier, especially if you're a licensed carrier, you are automatically just just given um, you know respect. I mean, people assume that you're a good person, you have empathy, you you have the means, whether it, it, not even your own financial means, but you have a support system around you. Anybody can help you take care of the child. You just have to prove that child to be taken care of. So it proves you have either enough money or enough friends and family who are invested in the life of this child and in your life. And what that does, what I've noticed, is that a lot of the reaction to this story from parents has been parent licensing. Well, should we really? I mean, parent licensing is bad. Should we really dictate who gets to raise a child? Which just blows my mind because. What it says to me so clearly is we do not care about the kids. We care about what we want. We care that we have a right to have children and God damn it, we're going to have them if we want them. And there's such a stigma against telling someone that they shouldn't have a child that I bet you if you saw a woman stomping a kitten in an alley and you told someone witnessing that with you, you know, that person should be legally banned from having a child. They go, oh. Well, I don't know about that. That's just taking one step too far, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I completely understand where that comes from. I mean, we had this conversation recently, you and I, regarding, you know, parenting license or some comment I heard somewhere that was a little bit extreme. But it's not, I mean, not to go to that extreme, but I don't think it would be a bad idea in the end to have people who want to become parents at least ponder it. You know, people just kind of like do it on a whim. Let's just have kids. Like if it's, you know, let's get a puppy. Even that's a big responsibility. You know, we have dogs. Even a puppy is a big responsibility. It's more like, let's get a plant. I don't know. It's, it's, yeah. But that book, I mean, I have not had the pleasure to read it yet. I have it on my to-do list, but that sounds really interesting. You're listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. Why are you child-free, Kristen? When did you decide to become child I don't know if I ever, you know, there wasn't a moment of decision necessarily. It wasn't a revelation, I don't think. Um, when I was little, I think like anyone else, I assumed I would have babies because I used to play house with a friend of mine and I would always be the guy. I never wanted to be the woman. I never wanted to be the, the mother. And we would have, I liked my girl dolls mostly because they had great hair, uh, that I could, you know, if I saw a doll I wanted, it was because of her hair, but we would play house. And if there was a child, 
I didn't No, not even if there wasn't a child, I just never wanted to be the woman. Um, I didn't, there was something about that role, maybe in something I'd seen on TV that didn't appeal to me. But when I had dolls, I would kind of treat them like kids. Like I, I would build a fort under the dining room table. And I remember very vividly taking one of my dolls in there to protect her from a storm. But she got on my nerves and I hit her. <laughs> <laughs> How did she get on your nerves? I don't know what she did. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been really bad if you hit the doll. <laughs> I was just mad for some reason. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> well, that should have been my first clue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I guess I must have had a hell of an imagination. <laughs> so I did have children, but I guess I didn't like them very much. And later. I never had to think about having kids much until I was in a serious relationship with the guy who would end up being my first husband. And I was a bagger at the grocery store at the time at the commissary in Germany. And um, I can't remember exactly why I started asking the cashiers this. I think I must have been with him. Maybe, geez, maybe I was even with my first boyfriend. But somehow the conversation of having kids came up with someone because I was determined to ask almost every cashier I bagged behind who I knew had kids, if you could go back in time and do it again, would you still have kids? And I know that at least seven out of 10 of them said no, they would not do it all over again. And that was pretty, I, I remember using that as like validation for something. I don't know if it was an argument or a discussion I was having, but I was like, yeah, okay, right. See, see. And then I don't think it really came up again until after I was married. Um, we might have been married about a year or so when he started asking about kids. And if I wanted to have when maybe when we were going to start having kids or if we were going to have them. And I think I remember feeling for the first time that this was real. I mean, every every other time I'd ever thought about it, it had been theoretical or, you know, like, what if? this or this person wants that but I don't think I do but now I was married and we had a sexual relationship obviously and he's asking about kids and it just became so real and everything in me at the thought of it instinctively instantly was was like in a movie if the the figure in the movie were to fade very quickly into the background I mean I just my whole soul just escaped from that situation so I think that's when I probably knew <laughs> for sure you were really young too right I was 19 when we first got when we got married um so this probably happened when I was about 20 or 21 yep exactly yeah and now you are with uh, another husband I am <laughs> and another uh, <laughs> and another We had a conversation about that today as well. Um, so he's, what's the word that you use? I keep forgetting that word. Ambivalent. Exactly. He's ambivalent. Yes. Yes. If I had wanted to have kids, he would have happily, or, or a kid for that matter, he would have happily reproduced with me. But he um, is just also equally fine without them. And he loves me. He loves me. He loves me more than the idea of some 
child he doesn't know. And I'm not saying that to put down people who do want children because I understand that the desire to have a child is every bit as strong as the desire not to, and that both are equally valid. I remember when, when um, probably with both my first and second husbands, when I knew that my not wanting a child meant that there was definitely no hope for the relationship. I was initially really, this was with my first husband. I was initially really mad about it. I was like, so you don't love me, a person who's living with you and who you know. You don't love me more than someone who doesn't exist, someone you don't even know. I did not get it. I felt um, not valuable. I felt not loved, frankly, in the way that I wanted to be loved and I wasn't, which had nothing to do with the kid. But I, I didn't quite understand that what that is, is a vision you have for your life. It's not, has nothing to do with how much they love me or how much they don't. It's, this is how I see my life. And if you can't be with me in that way, then we aren't going to work, which is exactly the same for, you know, someone who doesn't want kids trying to be with someone who does. It's like, (laughs) we don't have the same views. Yeah. Something's going to happen there. I mean, this is one of the things that is not negotiable. You either want it or you don't. And when you have clarity of what you want or don't want, you, I mean, I understand in your relationship, you have to have, you find someone who either is on the same page as you are or who doesn't care. Yeah. But you can think you're on the same page. I think unless you know beforehand and, and whether or not, whether you have this conversation and how deeply you get into it has probably a lot to do with, um, didn't say here, I forget that we were talking about this elsewhere recently. When my first husband and I got married, I had no reason to expect that he would want kids. And then when my second husband and I got married, uh, I had no reason to expect that he wouldn't accept the fact that I didn't want kids. He eventually let me know that he expected me to have them. But I really think depending on what your situation is, there's really no reason to believe that it won't simply work out because if you're someone who's never wanted kids maybe it doesn't occur to you that the other person will maybe you just kind of think the way people do oh they probably think like me i'm sure it's fine if you don't talk about it and maybe depending on your age you don't talk about it or you both make assumptions or you think you know you want something and then something happens as with one of our um instagram followers Uh, There was a couple who was completely in agreement about their lack of desire for children. And then there was a crisis of some sort. And one of them decided, oh, I really do want kids now. And the other one hasn't changed their mind. So it's, I don't even know if there's, there's any way to guarantee it unless you really, really know someone. But even that can go wrong. I knew a woman who was, who was living with someone for five years. They were perfectly happy. The day they got married, he changed. He became controlling husband, total freak, just, just. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, because I mean, that example that you just put, you know, the husband, crazy husband, that's a different thing. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of people still have, in general, we all have the right to change our minds. So you can marry someone today who is same wavelength, no kids, that's not, you know, they're firm on it. And then five years down the line, they can change their mind. And that could be heartbreaking. Like in the case of our, our Instagram follower who shared that with us. Um, but I mean, it's true. It's just a gamble, right? It's, it's, it's there's no way for you to know a hundred percent or to be a hundred percent sure that the other person is going to be with you in that the whole life. No. 
I think recently I asked Ian, um, he's never said, there's never been a time in our um, almost, well, in our 15 years together that he has said to me that he changed his mind or anything like that. But after my dad died this past October, um, there was a kind of new understanding of, you know, because you know, death happens, you know, people die, but when someone close enough to you dies for it to become real, like a real thing, like, oh my God, death really happens. I mean, it was never supposed to happen to my dad. He was never supposed to die, but it makes you see, or it made me and us see the reality of eventually everyone older than us. And even people our same age dropping away and just kind of exiting this existence that we know. And it's a strange kind of not loneliness, but absence. It's like, it's like part of your memory, part of your life, part of this, this whole chunk of your life kind of goes with it in a way that's hard to explain. And he said something about how, you know, someday it might just be us since we don't have kids. And that worried me for a second. I was like, oh no, is he suddenly experiencing this kind of revelation where he's going to think he regrets not having kids. And I say, think he regrets it because if you don't want something and you don't do it, there's no possible way you can regret it. And I hate when people say that, but I was afraid that he might have suddenly decided that he would have wished he wanted kids earlier. Uh, he, I, so I had to talk about him with that. So even I, I mean, even as much as I know how right we are for each other, as much as I trust that he is good with the way things are, there's sometimes that little teeny fear that he's going to maybe someday resent me. I, I, I understand. Everything that you just said to me, it's funny because I think everyone in a way, and especially childhood people, you know, um, we think about growing old and it's like quite big question mark is there, is it, I'm going to be alone. Am I going to be with a partner, husband, wife, whatever you want to call it? Um, how is my, my, how are my last days in this earth going to be? And I remember having this conversation with my sister and I told her, you know what, in the end, there's so many things that happen in life that the only person that is going to be with you from the beginning all the way to the end is yourself. So you have to try to be your best friend in the end, you know, just to keep yourself company because you never know what happens. I mean, anything could happen. This life is just so completely unpredictable. Um, so how is your relationship with Kristen? Is she your best friend? <laughs> <laughs> that depends on the day, Isabel. <laughs> um I know I like myself well enough that I enjoy living alone. I love living with Ian, but let's say something tragic happened to Ian. Well, before before I kill him off, I'll, I'll just keep it on a lighter level and say that because of his job, he's gone four days, home three days, gone three days. You know, he's he spends half the time away. And so I get a lot of alone time and I love it. I don't get lonely. I don't, uh, this is going to sound terrible but I don't miss him. Well, because I know he's coming home, you know, and, and I like being alone. So I don't, and when I lived alone before him, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think I enjoy being alone because I've been married three times. I'm telling you, sometimes things just happen. People ask, you say, yes, I don't know, but I love living alone. And if something ever happened to Ian, I would very likely not enter into another relationship. Um, wouldn't need to find somebody. Like, I don't have a need to be in a relationship. 
because I, I must enjoy my own company enough, or at least I like to keep, or I have enough things I like to do that I don't long for companionship, I don't think. In terms of being my own best friend, I think I'm a decent person. But sometimes I also get on my nerves in which I could just kind of escape my head for a day and just not and just not exist. You know, like I don't want to die. I just want to break from me. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> so in general, just in from a scale to one from one to ten, one being the least and ten being, you know, the most. How much do you love yourself? Isabel. I knew this was coming too and I thought I would have an answer for it well see that's tough because I think I'm perfectly fine but I also see things that I think other people would find obnoxious so I don't know I mean let's just put it at a eight and a half because I have bad points as everyone does no one's perfect and I recognize that I'm not I have terrible terrible qualities as anyone does but in general, let's just let's just say eight and a half. That's good. <laughs> okay. And I'm, this has evolved over time, of course. I imagine. Which part? Getting to eight. <laughs> getting to eight and a half. Come on, it's a really good number. Eight and a half over ten. Yeah, of course. Oh, oh. Well, no. I mean, I think if I were if I were to if I were to make a pro and con list of just you know text based qualities. I think I'm okay. I mean, I I can be mean sometimes. I can be very impatient. I can get enraged and just be very difficult to deal with. None of these things are good. No, but in general, yeah, it probably took me a while because when I was younger, I was really angry. I was just an angry kid. And then I was a depressed teenager. I was probably at my best in my 20s because I was doing a lot of, it was before I had ever experienced anything remotely, remotely resembling anxiety. That didn't happen until I was 30. I didn't even know what it was. I had, I worked with someone who had a panic attack and I was like, what are you panicking about? Just, just chill. What do you, what? I didn't get it. Uh, So that was probably my best time. I don't know if I thought about how much I like myself, which is probably good. (laughs) So I probably would have been okay with it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's like there was a a period of self-loathing followed by, I don't care. Like from 17 on, I was just golden just having a good time i knew that the purpose of life was to simply enjoy it was very laid back um and then 30 whatever happened to 30 i don't know if it was the twin towers or graduating from college with my undergrad degree and not knowing what i was going to do but somewhere that's when the anxiety presented itself to me uh, and after that i don't know just got weird so getting over that that took some time <laughs> but now you're here now I'm here. Well, uh, we we don't have any more time. So before I let you go, is there anything you would like to add? Well, I have heard you ask people what they love about being child-free. <gasps> okay, we can talk about that. So, yeah, no, it's okay. No, it was, that's cool. I just wanted to say that um, what I love about it, and none of these are reasons that I chose to be child-free. I didn't choose it. I just don't want kids. I just never want them. What I really like are things like never experiencing the worry a parent experiences. I love never being afraid that someone will kill my child. I love not having to experience empty nest. These and these are all sad things. I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot to, I know there's a lot to love about having a kid, but what I really love about not having them, in addition to the time and energy and all that stuff they take, is not having the horrible fear that something will happen to them. I'm bad enough with my pets. Like, if they have to 
my dog got stung by a ton of bees and she like collapsed. I've never been so scared or worried about, I ran two red lights getting her to the vet so she could get some kind of bee allergy shot. I couldn't imagine going through that with a child. So I'm very, that's what makes me happiest about not having kids is not having those experiences with a child. Not having the anxiety. Yes. Right. Well, uh, to my audience, guys, I'm going to leave you down here. All the links to follow Kristen. Oh, we didn't talk about obituary. We're going to have to talk. About oh, that's okay. Uh, but that's something that I think is interesting. I'm going to leave the link down here, though, so you can check it out, because I think that's a really cool thing. We need to talk about it sometime. Uh, Kristen's obituary project, Kristen's Twitter, Instagram, and the link for you to go and buy the age of the child. Thanks again for your time, Kristen. It's a pleasure having you here. I love being here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, continue fueling your inner fire.